Section 5 of The Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. First Part. Elements of Pure Practical Reason. Book 1. The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason. Chapter 1. Of the Principles of Pure Practical Reason. Of the Deduction of the Fundamental Principles of Pure Practical Reason. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This analytic shows that pure reason can be practical, that is, can of itself determine the will independently of anything empirical, and this it proves by a fact which pure reason in us proves itself actually practical, namely, the autonomy shown in the fundamental principle of morality, by which reason determines the will to action. It shows at the same time that this fact is inseparably connected with the consciousness of freedom of the will, nay, is identical with it, and by this the will of a rational being, although as belonging to the world of sense it recognizes itself necessarily subject to the laws of causality, like other efficient causes, yet at the same time on the other side, namely, as being in itself, is conscious of existing in and being determined by an intelligible order of things, conscious not by virtue of a special intuition of itself, but by virtue of certain dynamical laws which determine its causality in the sensible world. For it has been elsewhere proved that if freedom is predicated of us, it transports us into an intelligible order of things. Now if we compare this with the analytical part of the critique of pure speculative reason, we shall see a remarkable contrast. There it was not fundamental principles, but pure sensible intuition, space and time, that was the first datum that made a priori knowledge possible, though only of objects of the senses. Synthetical principles could not be derived from mere concepts without intuition. On the contrary, they could only exist with reference to this intuition, and therefore to objects of possible experience, since it is the concepts of the understanding, united with this intuition, which alone make that knowledge possible, which we call experience." Beyond objects of experience, and therefore with regard to things as noumena, all positive knowledge was rightly disclaimed for speculative reason. This reason, however, went so far as to establish with certainty the concept of noumena, that is, the possibility, nay, the necessity, of thinking them, for example. It showed against all objections that the supposition of freedom, negatively considered, was quite consistent with those principles and limitations of pure theoretic reason but it could not give us any definite enlargement of our knowledge with respect to such objects, but on the contrary cut off all view of them altogether. On the other hand, the moral law, although it gives no view, yet gives us a fact absolutely inexplicable from any data of the sensible world, and the whole compass of our theoretical use of reason, a fact which points to a pure world of the understanding, nay, even defines it positively, and enables us to know something of it, namely, a law. This law, as far as rational beings are concerned, gives to the world of sense, which is a sensible system of nature, the form of a world of the understanding, that is, of a supersensible system of nature, without interfering with its mechanism. Now, a system of nature, in the most general sense, is the existence of things under laws. The sensible nature of rational beings in general is their existence under laws empirically conditioned, which, from the point of view of reason, is heteronomy. This supersensible nature of the same beings, on the other hand, is their existence according to laws which are independent of every empirical condition, and therefore belong to the autonomy of pure reason. 
and, since the laws by which the existence of things depends on cognition are practical, supersensible nature, so far as we can form any notion of it, is nothing else than a system of nature under the autonomy of pure practical reason. Now, the law of this autonomy is the moral law, which, therefore, is the fundamental law of a supersensible nature, and of a pure world of understanding, whose counterpart must exist in the world of sense, without interfering with its laws. We might call the former the archetypical world, natura archetypa, which we only know in the reason, and the latter the ectypal world, natura ectypa, because it contains the possible effect of the idea of the former which is the determining principle of the will. For the moral law, in fact, transfers us ideally into a system in which pure reason, if it were accompanied with adequate physical power, would produce the summum bonum, and it determines our will to give the sensible world the form of a system of rational beings. The least attention to oneself proves that this idea rarely serves as the model for the determinations of our will. When the maxim which I am disposed to follow in giving testimony is tested by the practical reason, I always consider what it would be if it were to hold as a universal law of nature. It is manifest that in this view it would oblige every one to speak the truth. For it cannot hold as a universal law of nature that statements should be allowed to have the force of proof, and yet to be positively untrue. Similarly, the maxim which I adopt with respect to disposing freely of my life is at once determined, when I ask myself what it should be, in order that a system, of which it is the law, should maintain itself. It is obvious that in such a system no one could arbitrarily put an end to his own life, for such an arrangement would not be a permanent order of things and so in all similar cases. Now, in nature, as it actually is an object of experience, the free will is not of itself determined to maxims which could of themselves be the foundation of a natural system of universal laws, or which could even be adapted to a system so constituted. On the contrary, its maxims are private inclinations which constitute, indeed, a natural whole in conformity with pathological physical laws, but could not form a part of a system of nature which would only be possible through our will, acting in accordance with pure practical laws. Yet we are, through reason, conscious of a law to which all our maxims are subject, as though a natural order must be originated from our will. This law, therefore, must be the idea of a natural system, not given in experience, and yet possible through freedom. A system, therefore, which is supersensible, and to which we give objective reality, at least in a practical point of view, since we look on it as an object of our will as pure rational beings. Hence the distinction between the laws of a natural system to which the will is subject, and of a natural system which is subject to a will, as far as its relation to its free actions is concerned, rests on this, that in the former the objects must be the causes of the ideas which determine the will, whereas in the latter the will is the cause of the objects, so that its causality has its determining principle solely in the pure faculty of reason, which may be, therefore, called a pure practical reason. There are, therefore, two very distinct problems, how, on the one side, pure reason can cognize objects a priori, and how, on the other side, it can be an immediate determining principle of the will, that is, of the causality of the rational being, with respect to the reality of objects, through the mere thought of the universal validity of its own maxims as laws. The former, which belongs to the critique of the pure speculative reason, requires a previous explanation, how intuitions without which no object can be given, 
and therefore, none known synthetically, are possible a priori, and its solution turns out to be that these are all only sensible, and therefore do not render possible any speculative knowledge which goes further than possible experience reaches, and that therefore all the principles of that pure speculative reason avail only to make experiences possible, either experience of given objects, or of those that may be given ad infinitum, but never are completely given. The latter, which belongs to the critique of practical reason, requires no explanation how the objects of the faculty of desire are possible, for that, being a problem of the theoretical knowledge of nature, is left to the critique of the speculative reason. But only how reason can determine the maxims of the will, whether this takes place only by means of empirical ideas, as principles of determination, or whether pure reason can be practical, and be the law of a possible order of nature, which is not empirically knowable. The possibility of such a supersensible system of nature, the conception of which can also be the ground of its reality through our own free will, does not require any a priori intuition of an intelligible world, which being in this case supersensible would be impossible for us. For the question is only as to the determining principle of volition in its maxims, namely, whether it is empirical or is a conception of the pure reason, having the legal character belonging to it in general, and how it can be the latter. It is left to the theoretic principles of reason to decide whether the causality of the will suffices for the realization of the objects or not, this being an inquiry into the possibility of the objects of the volition. Intuition of these objects is therefore of no importance to the practical problem. We are here concerned only with the determination of the will and the determining principles of its maxims as a free will, not at all with the result. For, provided only that the will conforms to the law of pure reason, then let its power in execution be what it may, whether according to these maxims of legislation of a possible system of nature any such system really results or not, this is no concern of the critique which only inquires whether, and in what way, pure reason can be practical, that is, directly determine the will. In this inquiry criticism may and must begin with pure practical laws and their reality. But instead of intuition it takes as their foundation the conception of their existence in the intelligible world, namely, the concept of freedom. For this concept has no other meaning, and these laws are only possible in relation to freedom of the will, but freedom being supposed, they are necessary, or conversely freedom is necessary, because those laws are necessary, being practical postulates. It cannot be further explained how this consciousness of the moral law, or, what is the same thing, of freedom, is possible, but that it is admissible is well established in the theoretical critique. The exposition of the supreme principle of practical reason is now finished, that is to say, it has been shown first, what it contains, that it subsists for itself quite a priori and independent of empirical principles, and next in what it is distinguished from all other practical principles, with the deduction, that is, the justification of its objective and universal validity, and the discernment of the possibility of such a synthetical proposition a priori, we cannot expect to succeed so well as in the case of the principles of pure theoretical reason. For these refer to objects of possible experience, namely, to phenomenon, and we could prove that these phenomena could be known as objects of experience only by being brought under the categories in accordance with these laws, and consequently that all possible experience must conform to these laws. But I could not proceed in this way with the deduction of the moral law. 
for this does not concern the knowledge of the properties of objects, which may be given to the reason from some other source, but a knowledge which can itself be the ground of the existence of the objects, and by which reason in a rational being has causality, i.e., pure reason, which can be regarded as a faculty immediately determining the will. Now, all our human insight is at an end as soon as we have arrived at fundamental powers or faculties, for the possibility of these cannot be understood by any means, and just as little should it be arbitrarily invented unassumed. Therefore, in the theoretic use of reason, it is experience alone that can justify us in assuming them. But this expedient of adducing empirical proofs, instead of a deduction from a priori sources of knowledge, is denied us here in respect to the pure practical faculty of reason. For whatever requires to draw the proof of its reality from experience must depend for the grounds of its possibility on principles of experience, and purer, yet practical, reason, by its very notion, cannot be regarded as such. Further, the moral law is given as a fact of pure reason, of which we are a priori conscious, and which is apodiectically certain, though it be granted that in experience no example of its exact fulfilment can be found. Hence, the objective reality of the moral law cannot be proved by any deduction by any efforts of theoretical reason, whether speculative or empirically supported, and therefore, even if we renounced its apodeictic certainty, it could not be proved a posteriori by experience, and yet it is firmly established of itself. But instead of this vainly sought deduction of the moral principle, something else is found which was quite unexpected, namely, that this moral principle serves conversely as the principle of the deduction of an inscrutable faculty, which no experience could prove, but of which speculative reason was compelled at least to assume the possibility, in order to find, amongst its cosmological ideas, the unconditioned in the chain of causality, so as not to contradict itself, I mean the faculty of freedom. The moral law, which itself does not require a justification, proves not merely the possibility of freedom, but that it really belongs to beings who recognize this law as binding on themselves. The moral law is in fact a law of the causality of free agents, and therefore of the possibility of a supersensible system of nature, just as the metaphysical law of events in the world of sense was a law of causality of the sensible system of nature, and it therefore determines what speculative philosophy was compelled to leave undetermined, namely, the law for a causality, the concept of which in the latter was only negative, and therefore for the first time gives this concept objective reality. This sort of credential of the moral law, viz., that it is set forth as a principle of the deduction of freedom, which is a causality of pure reason, is a sufficient substitute for all a priori justification, since theoretic reason was compelled to assume at least the possibility of freedom, in order to satisfy a want of its own. For the moral law proves its reality, so as even to satisfy the critique of the speculative reason, by the fact that it adds a positive definition to a causality previously conceived only negatively, the possibility of which was incomprehensible to speculative reason, which yet was compelled to suppose it. For it adds the notion of a reason that directly determines the will, by imposing on its maxims the condition of a universal legislative form, and thus it is able for the first time to give objective, though only practical, reality to reason, which always became transcendent, when it sought to proceed speculatively with its ideas. It thus changes the transcendent use of reason into an eminent use, 
so that reason is itself, by means of ideas, an efficient cause in the field of experience. The determination of the causality of beings in the world of sense, as such, can never be unconditioned, and yet for every series of conditions there must be something unconditioned, and therefore there must be a causality which is determined wholly by itself. Hence the idea of freedom as a faculty of absolute spontaneity was not found to be a want, but as far as its possibility is concerned, an analytic principle of pure speculative reason. But as it is absolutely impossible to find in experience any example in accordance with this idea, because amongst the causes of things as phenomena it would be impossible to meet with any absolutely unconditioned determination of causality, we were only able to defend our supposition that a freely acting cause might be a being in the world of sense, in so far as it is considered in the other point of view as a noumenon, showing that there is no contradiction in regarding all its actions as subject to physical conditions, so far as they are phenomena, and yet regarding its causality as physically unconditioned, in so far as the acting being belongs to the world of understanding, and in thus making the concept of freedom the regulative principle of reason. By this principle I do not indeed learn what the object is to which that sort of causality is attributed, but I remove the difficulty, for on the one side, in the explanation of events in the world, and consequently also of the actions of rational beings, I leave to the mechanism of physical necessity the right of ascending from conditioned to condition ad infinitum, while on the other side I keep open for speculative reason the place for which it is vacant, namely, the intelligent, in order to transfer the unconditioned thither. But I was not able to verify this supposition, that is, to change it into the knowledge of a being so acting, not even into the knowledge of the possibility of such a being. This vacant place is now filled by pure practical reason, with a definite law of causality in an intelligible world, causality with freedom, namely the moral law. Speculative reason does not hereby gain anything as regards its insight, but only as regards the certainty of its problematical notion of freedom, which here obtains objective reality, which, though only practical, is nevertheless undoubted. Even the notion of causality, the application, and consequently the signification, of which holds properly only in relation to phenomena, so as to connect them into experiences, as is shown by the critique of pure reason, is not so enlarged as to extend its use beyond these limits. For if reason sought to do this, it would have to show how the logical relation of principle and consequence can be used synthetically in a different sort of intuition from the sensible. That is how a causa noumenon is possible. This it can never do, and as practical reason it does not even concern itself with it, since it only places the determining principle of causality of man as a sensible creature, which is given, in pure reason, which is therefore called practical, and therefore it employs the notion of cause, not in order to know objects, but to determine causality in relation to objects in general. It can abstract altogether from the application of this notion to objects with a view to theoretical knowledge, since this concept is always found a priori in the understanding, even independently of any intuition. Reason, then, employs it only for a practical purpose, and hence we can transfer the determining principle of the will into the intelligible order of things, admitting at the same time that we cannot understand how the notion of cause can determine the knowledge of these things. But reason must cognize causality with respect to the actions of the will in the sensible world in a definite manner, otherwise practical reason could not really produce any action. 
but as to the notion which it forms of its own causality as noumenon, it need not determine it theoretically, with a view to the cognition of its supersensible existence, so as to give it significance in this way. For it acquires significance apart from this, though only for practical use, namely through the moral law. Theoretically viewed, it remains always a pure a priori concept of the understanding, which can be applied to objects whether they have been given sensibly or not, although in the latter case it has no definite theoretical significance or application, but is only a formal, though essential, conception of the understanding relating to an object in general. The significance which reason gives it through the moral law is merely practical, inasmuch as the idea of the idea of the law of causality, of the will, has self-causality, or is its determining principle. End of section 5